It's Monday, December 19th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, everything you never wondered about those wooden castle-like playgrounds of Gen X and Millennials youths. Plus, how a nano-thin layer of gold could finally be the cure to the dreaded glasses fog of our COVID masking era. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. I saw some photos circulating recently of playgrounds from the early 1900s. One in particular shows a structure of sparse bars about two to three stories tall with kids climbing all over the top of it, hanging off some elevated swings or crawling up ladders with more than 20 steps on them. Compared to the rounded plastic playground equipment today, designed to be safe, educational, and lawsuit-resistant, it nearly looks like some kind of trap intentionally designed to harm kids. Playgrounds weren't designed with much safety in mind until the 1980s, at least in the U.S., when our litigious nature became overwhelming. According to defunct outlet Hopes and Fears, it was in 1981 that several highly publicized playground injuries led to the first-ever safety guidelines for playgrounds from the U.S. Consumer Safety Commission. Those of us who grew up in the 1980s and 90s will remember seeing the playgrounds of our youth change over the years. The metal slides replaced with plastic ones, the concrete replaced with sand, which was later replaced with wood chips, and in more recent years, a sort of rubber blacktop. One type of playground that started getting popular in the midst of the new safety regulations is one that just about any Gen Xer and millennial in the U.S. would recognize, and perhaps once thought was unique to their hometown. A wooden playground, made up of castle towers and bridges, escape hatches and tire swings, where you could run around a large site and often be hidden from your parents or other kids. I learned today that all of those playgrounds, of which it turns out there were thousands all across the U.S. as well as in Australia and Israel, were made by one company, Leathers & Associates. The company was founded by Bob Leathers, an Ithaca, New York-based architect who built his first playground for his kids' school in 1970. That playground was entirely built by volunteers, and its design was inspired by direct requests from the kids at the school. It worked so well that Leathers started doing the same thing in other communities, always getting the kids involved in the design and adults in the community involved in the build. And after a decade of building about five playgrounds a year, Leathers finally founded Leathers & Associates in the early 80s. And those two tenants would continue to be the driving force of his company. While Leathers & Associates didn't pocket much from the playgrounds, that didn't mean the process was cheap. When a community decided to invest in a Leathers playground, which in the late 80s was running between ten dollars and $60,000, they'd have to fundraise. Sometimes money in a town or school budget would be earmarked for the process, but even then there would usually be a fundraising period. Fortunately, Leathers & Associates eventually did enough projects that they were able to advise on fundraising strategies that had worked for other communities and help the community along every step of the way toward building the playground. And to further keep costs down, the community would also help physically build the playground. As the piece in Hopes and Fears says, it was a sort of modern-day barn raising. 
Quoting further, builds generally require about five days of 10-hour shifts and often necessitate thousands of volunteers. Tools and other supplies were sometimes donated to keep costs as low as possible. To coordinate and fund all this activity, volunteers running these projects donated months or even years of their lives to making these projects happen. End quote. And that community aspect was important to Leathers. He was so committed to his methodology that, according to a 1989 article in the Buffalo News, when Donald Trump asked Leathers to build one of his playgrounds in the foyer of his Trump Palace in Atlantic City, Leathers said no. He told the newspaper, quote, My playgrounds are built with volunteer labor. That's part of the deal. You can't go out and buy these ready-made, because I believe a community should do something for its kids. It should have a stake in that playground. End quote. I remember a similar build day and period of fundraising happening in my own hometown. It wasn't a Leathers and Associates project, I'm almost positive, because the final result wasn't one of those wooden, castle-like playgrounds. Ours was a bright purple and yellow plastic playground that was built in honor of an elementary school classmate of mine who passed away when she was in second grade. Taking inspiration from her favorite colors and her desire for other kids who use wheelchairs and other mobility devices to actually get to play on the playground instead of just watching from the sidelines, the entire structure was wheelchair accessible. I remember a ton of fundraisers happening to raise the money to build it, and then a weekend or two when our parents spent all day helping physically build the playground while us younger kids were penned in the soccer field with some construction tape. The park was awesome in and of itself, but the story behind it and the community spirit that helped create it always stuck with me, even as a kid. So I get what Leathers meant about the importance of the community having a stake in the playground, really caring about it. For his playgrounds, though, it wasn't just the adults picking up the tools who had a stake in it. He brought the kids into the design process. For every project, himself or one of his staff would travel to that town and sit down with local kids to brainstorm ideas for the playground. Now, even though a Leathers playground has a very distinctive look, to the point that nostalgia posts about them online often find people fighting over whose hometown the one in the photo was actually from, Leathers has pointed out to various outlets over the years how each one is unique to that community. You know, some kids wanted dragons, others lighthouses and octopuses. Over the years, Leathers picked up on demographic trends from the kids. He told the Buffalo News back in that 1989 article, quote, For example, urban kids seem to want to have more private spaces. They love crawling places, cave-like structures, more private cubby holes. Suburban kids want more open activities, more swinging, running and obstacle-type devices, and children in rural areas want high-tech themes, space shuttles, spacecraft, end quote. But again, the one thing that tied them all together was the material wood. Not the plastic or rubber of today's playgrounds, nor the metal of Leathers and Associates' precursors and contemporaries, wood. And the reason? Quoting Hopes and Fears, if you're going to fall and hit something, would you rather hit wood or concrete or steel? It's forgiving for kids playing on it, Leathers says. Wood is also cheaper than a lot of the more modern materials made specifically for playgrounds, and, as Leathers notes, the farmed wood his company uses is environmentally friendly. Wood is also volunteer-friendly. These playgrounds are built by volunteers who aren't familiar with sophisticated construction techniques, 
but most people can use a hammer, and many people can use a saw, he says, end quote. But wood requires a lot more maintenance. Now, on the one hand, this is where that community stake comes in again. A community member who remembers the weekend they spent hammering away at that playground is going to be more willing to support efforts to maintain a playground when it needs repairs. On the other hand, those ties to the park weaken over time, and sometimes just aren't enough to combat the practical and financial concerns surrounding a decaying playground structure. That, and as safety regulations have tightened over the years, there have been more and more concerns raised about these wooden playgrounds. While Leathers & Associates, now run by Bob Leathers' son Mark, has newer designs that adhere to all safety regulations, some of the ones that were built in the 70s, 80s, and 90s don't necessarily. And as such, many of us have seen some of our favorite childhood playgrounds torn down and replaced with much less inspiring structures. Among the concerns are the type of surfacing that prevents injuries from inevitable falls, as well as restrictions on how high parts of the structure can even be, and the wood commonly used when the playgrounds were being built was often treated with chromated copper arsenate, which has since been banned due to the risk of arsenic leakage. Now, while those risks are real, the question inevitably circles back to the continuing debate of how much we should be shielding kids from danger and how much we should be letting them take risks. These newer playgrounds often come with modules for different types of education, turning blocks around to make patterns, solve puzzles, or learn letters, for example. But are those modules a sufficient replacement for the deep learning that can come from risk and imagination? The Hopes and Fears piece brought up an interesting concept called adventure playgrounds. Quoting again, Adventure playgrounds resemble junkyards in which kids have near total freedom and are given permission to take risks that would give most 21st century parents a heart attack. They light fires, use real tools like saws and hammers, climb trees, and play in the mud. Adventure playgrounds employ play workers who are highly trained to supervise children from a distance, encouraging them to take measured risks and learn from the consequences. Filmmaker Aaron Davis, who produced a short documentary about one such playground, believes that spaces like adventure playgrounds teach children valuable skills about risk, which are essential for decision-making. They look around at adventure playgrounds and they get it, she says. They don't think, I can jump off a tree. They move their bodies differently in that space, and that awareness is valuable. If an adult says, don't climb that, a child is going to be like, okay, I won't. But if they develop for themselves an idea of their personal boundaries and limitations, that's a really important place to be psychologically by the time you're a teenager and you're making even higher stakes decisions about your personal safety. End quote. Ellen Sandsetter, a professor of psychology at Queen Maud University in Norway, told the New York Times some years ago, quote, children need to encounter risks and overcome fears on the playground, end quote, pointing out that tall slides and monkey bars are great examples of that that still remain in playgrounds. Other psychologists compare risks like these in childhood to an adult undergoing therapy to conquer phobias. Some studies have even indicated that a child who's injured in a fall before the age of nine is less likely to have a fear of heights when they're older. 
The increasing number of safety regulations watering down the adventure side of playgrounds over the past several decades is what filmmaker Davis sees as a larger cultural anxiety, saying, quote, It's about feeling insecure in our place in the world. This new idea that safety is attainable by creating greater restrictions on our lives, you know, safety is a myth, end quote. Cheryl Leathers, founder Bob's wife, takes the middle road, telling Hope and Fears, quote, Playgrounds are about taking risks, but you want them to be safe risks. That's pretty complex to deal with, end quote. And I think that may be why these wooden parks appealed to so many of us. They weren't nearly as risky or as painful and uncomfortable as some of those all-metal playgrounds that came before them, but there was still some risk to them. You could easily get a splinter, fall from one of the rope bridges or 16-foot towers, but also, likely thanks to the kids who had been design consultants, they felt more like clubhouses made by fellow kids, not a playground made for you by adults. A peek at Leather & Associates' website shows that the playgrounds they build today make use of a bit more color, wooden-looking plastic instead of true wood, and rubber ground instead of wood chips. But the vision is still there. There are towers and nooks for kids to hide out in. The campus of the playground sprawls over an acre. Super easy to get lost, to hide from the adults, to feel like you're having your own adventure with your friends while safely within the gates of the park. In many ways, it feels like the perfect middle ground for protective-leaning parents knowing what we know now about safety concerns. It's still a chance for freedom and exploration, but a bit less risk of arsenic leakage. Especially as COVID and other respiratory virus case numbers tick up with the winter season, many of us are masking up more in more places. And I'd like to take this time to extend a note of appreciation to everyone who wears glasses. You have put up with years of annoying fog in your lenses that for certain facial structures just won't relent no matter how many online hacks you try. But a new development out of Zurich might be your answer. Researchers have come up with a gold nanocoating that could prevent condensation from building up on glass. The development is not specific to eyeglasses and mask wearing, and neither is the fogging up phenomenon, of course. It happens anytime moisture in humid air hits glass that is colder than the moisture. Think about your car windshield in cold weather. But cars have a defog or defrost setting for your windshield. Masks do not come with a similar function for glasses wearers. Maybe until now? As Gizmodo puts it, quote, Fogged up car windows are an annoying problem, but even worse is when a vehicle's metal trim parts become too hot to touch after sitting in the sun for hours. Many metals are effective energy conductors and readily absorb heat, which is what the researchers are relying on for a new type of invisible glass coating that effectively does the same thing. End quote. This invisible to the naked eye coating is made from a thin layer of gold, which, quoting Engadget, heats glass by up to 46 degrees Fahrenheit by absorbing a large amount of infrared radiation, keeping your glasses fog-free in many humid conditions. And unlike conventional approaches, which merely spread water around using hydrophilic molecules, this prevents the condensation from even starting. 
The 10 nanometer thick coating sandwiches gold between layers of titanium oxide that not only amplify the heating effect through refraction, but protect the gold against wear. The design also won't lead to overheating in warm weather as it prevents radiation from reaching the other side. ETH Zurich is keen to point out that it made the coating using techniques common to manufacturing, such as vacuum-based vapor deposition in a clean room. Companies might not have to revamp their production lines, in other words, end quote. Now, there aren't any production lines ready to go on this product just yet. The researchers have filed a patent, but no companies have bit just yet. And Gizmodo brings up the possibility that the technology may not work as well in the winter months when it's most needed because the gold draws that necessary energy from the sun. But researchers say a small amount of electricity from, say, a minuscule battery hidden in the arm of the glasses could sufficiently heat it. And what about the cost? Would this be a glasses add-on most people couldn't even afford? It is gold, after all. Researchers say it's such a tiny amount of gold per pair of glasses that it shouldn't actually cost that much. And they're looking into whether other metals could be just as effective just in case. So maybe one day when you buy new glasses, you can pick from adding blue light filters and gold anti-fog layers. And even though the experiment was run on glasses, the researchers do hope it could be used on windshields as well one day, which after a weekend of driving through snowstorms in Michigan, I would be very excited about. Well, that is going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.